Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The eyes of the world, the eyes of the populations of the world are on you and we have your numbers. That lingering sense of fleas remains and we'll see what comes next. We need to make sure that what sits there on a piece of paper is actually going to turn into tangible, actionable projects on the ground that are going to make a difference to people's lives. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Well, as we digest the conclusion of COP26 and the watered-down language on limiting coal use, Europe's foreign ministers are meeting to discuss the migrant crisis. The European Union says it's virtually halted the artificial flow of migrants into Belarus. Poland has accused Russia of masterminding the situation on its border and there's concern about Russian troops massing near Ukraine. Well, meanwhile, here at home, the Conservatives are dogged by allegations of sleaze. MPs will vote to scrap the so-called Leadsom Amendment today that kicked off the whole controversy over Owen Paterson and lobbying. Perhaps the only good news today is actually on the booster jabs, Ewan, which have been expanded to younger people in the UK. So a third dose for those aged 40 to 49 and then a second dose for 16 and 17-year-olds. Well, Professor Jonathan Van Tam is England's Deputy Chief Medical Officer. We have to be constantly vigilant for the concern about a variant that might give us more of a problem. Lots to play for still, not a time to relax, but I do see once the spring gets here, hopefully some calmer waters ahead. Well, not a time to relax, says Jonathan Van Tam. Well, joining us now is Neil Coyle, who is Labour MP for Bermondsey and Old Southwark in London and also a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Neil, I mean, I listed there a whole array of concerns for the government here and for Europe. The EU has approved new sanctions powers related to Belarus over this flow of migrants towards its eastern border. But surely this is setting Europe up now for a major clash, it would appear, with Russia. Well, uh, the the indication is that Russia is uh, involved. And, of course, Belarus only appears to have one friend on the planet in uh, Putin in Russia. So it only acts, it only, uh, you know, uh, involves itself in activities like this with Russia's permission. How much of a dangerous moment is this for UK? Do you worry that uh, with this big challenge to our foreign policy, now that we've left the European Union, we're, we're sort of... We're out on our own. Do you think? Do you think uh, Britain still has an important voice in the world? I, I, I fear, and actually, if you look back to Afghanistan, what was largely missed in the discussion, and we had eighteen months to withdraw. In March, the UK government told the Lords equivalent of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee that they were in discussions to look at an international alternative if the US were to leave Afghanistan before we were ready. That was in March. Nothing happened. The UK was unable to replace just 5,000 US soldiers with our Commonwealth allies or with other countries uh, working with us to prevent the humiliation that we ended up seeing in, in August. So I do fear that the UK is very much isolated. Or, you know, The US did not work with us 
the Commonwealth didn't provide that small amount of extra support. This is a government that hasn't just, uh, you know, torn apart international treaties with the European Union, but has undermined our ability to project our values and vision across the globe. Global Britain is not a uh, strategy at all. It's just a, a mantra for ministers to use to pretend they've got an agenda. Okay, Liz Truss, though, did um, a pretty solid job in terms of the Daily Telegraph, um, the Foreign Secretary, of course. Uh, She was quite robust, so robust, actually, that Moscow then retorted, uh, as reported by UK newspapers, uh, with, you know, Moscow blaming the UK for creating the crisis with Iraqi refugees, that migrant crisis that we're talking about in the EU. Um, Iraqi refugees created by the UK, how is the the answer given that? Uh, involvement there. It's it's ridiculous. Um, you know, the, the the Russian pretense that this is somehow our fault is is, is clearly a nonsense. And and yes, uh, you know, if, if Liz Truss wants to be more uh, aggressive in tactics towards other countries, I would certainly welcome that. I think uh, the sanctions don't just need to be against Belarus. They do need increasingly to be against Russia and even China, who are uh, very much not a friend to liberal democracy across the world and are busy dismantling what was a democracy in Hong Kong. A government source told The Times that President Macron's using the, the migrant crisis to punish Britain for Brexit. Do, do you think France is doing enough to stop people crossing the, the English Channel? I don't think blaming France is an acceptable uh, position. France takes three times as many asylum seekers refugees as the UK. And if the UK's only uh, argument in this from our government is France should do more, well, you know, that kind of betrays our tradition, our Christian values of helping those in need. And if the government is serious about people not crossing the channel, it needs to get serious about opening up safe routes. It talks about safe routes, but has provided the, the you know the whole sum of diddly squat when it comes to actually opening up alternative routes. So I put forward an amendment to the Nationality and Borders Bill, which I just finished in Commons Committee, to do exactly that, to actually take uh, asylum seekers rather than force them into... Mm. Uh, unsafe vessels to try and cross the English Channel. And, and of course, we've got this almost fictional, this work of fiction, this, this, the National Open Borders Bill, in that, you know, the, the UN says it breaches our international obligations. It certainly breaks international maritime law to try and force uh, the RNLI and others even to watch people die and not intervene to save them. It is a complete, uh, you know, farce of a bill that's unenforceable, as I say, breaks international law and leaves us looking less of an ally to those like France who want us to just do our bit. Mm. Is there any alternative um, uh, than to, to pay France, essentially, well, to try to, um, well, well, to, no, try no. to prevent... I, I say, it, you know, this is a government that came uh, with a, a massive majority, elected in 2019, mm. not that long ago, with a massive majority. Two of its manifesto commitments were to retain our armed forces personnel and to retain our aid spending. Both of those measures helped prevent refugees being created in the first place. Certainly, aid spending, if, you know, if uh, ministers keep saying other countries and neighbouring countries need to do more, well, Pakistan's got a million refugees. If we want Pakistan to do more, retaining our aid spending to Pakistan would be a helpful measure. Instead, it's being cut. So, of course, but, Pakistan will, will send people further on. Inevitably, yes, that means some will want to come to the UK. Yeah, but you have the immediate issue, which is of, of more than a thousand migrants sort of crossing, crossing that English Channel, that dangerous channel, as you know. That was one day, yes. And the solution to people crossing, as I say, isn't to say uh, we're, we're going to, you know, uh, use vessels to push back. 
It's actually to work out why they've ended up in that situation. They've tried to avoid it. Um, and and it, if, you know, rather than paying £54 million to France, perhaps we could do a bit more and take the same number of asylum seekers as France, we're similar size economies, and then they wouldn't be making that journey. Is there not more that, that France should be doing? Should, should they not be claiming asylum in, in a safe country think, that, that they're already in? I think, I think you know, uh, when it comes to what France is doing, of course France should be trying to stop people smugglers and human traffickers, who are part of the big problem here, from loading dangerous vessels, putting people in dangerous positions along the coastline. They are doing some of that. They could do more. That's, that's, I don't think that's particularly disputable. But, as I say, if the, if the government wants to prevent that, actually what, what the government's own analysis says is that the plan that's put forward in the Nationality Reports Bill will actually make people take more dangerous journeys. So, for example, if the government pushes ahead with its pushback strategy, allowing vessels to bump other vessels back into French waters, I can't imagine that go down well with France, to be honest. But, anyway, if it goes ahead with that, you are not allowed to do that to a, to a vessel like a dinghy or a kayak or something that's collapsible. So you will force the people smugglers and the, uh, the, the people trying to get across Dinghy's Channel to go into dinghies and kayaks and less uh, rigid vessels to try and get across. It, it, by, by the government's own plan, mm. by the government's own analysis, the Home Office analysis says it will make it uh, more dangerous for some people okay. trying to get across. OK. Why is the Labour Party then struggling to get its message across? I mean, you've had more than 11 days of bad newspaper headlines and this um, sleaze allegations dogging the Conservatives and, and now accusations against other lead Conservatives. Labour have only just about managed a small lead in a couple of polls. Why are voters so hesitant to back your party now? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I don't think it's, uh, it takes a huge amount of analysis to say that we weren't particularly popular in 2019 under the former leader. We have to rebuild that trust, and we've been trying to do that. I think Keir Starmer's actually doing a valiant job against a public that has an enormous amount of goodwill towards the government in a pandemic. What, what people don't want their government to do well in a global health crisis. Uh, there has been a lot of natural inclination to back the government in that situation. I think some of that is coming to an end as the vaccine and booster rollout takes effect and, and we see less, albeit, you know, you've just had that warning about making sure we still take precautions to take care. Mm. That goodwill is dissipating. People know that the contracts were awarded in, in very dodgy ways in, 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 in some cases, and they've seen the Tories try to corrupt the, uh, the system in Parliament by which we hold MPs to account and break the rules. You know, we are voting today on measures the government passed last week to try and protect someone who was found guilty by a cross-party independent system of an egregious case of taking cash to questions and access. It was, a, you know, uh, open-shut case, but the Tories tried to protect him. And there are other Tories who we've seen, not just Jeffrey Cox, but there's, a, there's another Conservative, Crispin Blunt, who's been accused of using his office for a paid uh, appointment. So... Mm. You know, there is more to come and we have a government that I think is up to its eyeballs in uh, a lot of this and the public are seeing that. And, and thankfully, they also see in Keir Starmer, someone who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, uh, ended up convicting former MPs in expenses uh, scandal and is someone who does have probity and integrity in a way that no one would suggest that Boris Johnson does. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Well, let's uh, take a look at what else is making news in uh, the world of politics today. Three people in their 20s are in custody under the Terrorism Act after a car exploded outside a hospital in Liverpool. One man died and the driver was injured following the blast, which coincided with the country falling silent for Remembrance Sunday. Mayor of Liverpool, Joanne Anderson, told the BBC that the taxi driver managed to divert what could have been an absolutely awful disaster at the hospital. She described his efforts as heroic. Well, speaking of Remembrance Sunday, the Queen hopes to continue with light official duties in the coming days after missing yesterday's national service to remember the war dead. Her Majesty decided with great regret not to attend the event at the Cenotaph in London after spraining her back. Buckingham Palace says that she regards the ceremony as one of the most significant engagements of the year. And the real living wage is increasing by 40p to £9.90 an hour outside London. More than 300,000 people work for employees who voluntarily signed up to the pay rate, which is higher than the legal minimum, which is currently £8.91 an hour and uh, somewhat confusingly called the national living wage. Real living wage employers in London will pay £11.05 an hour and that's a rise of 20p an hour. Okay, so that's a roundup of some of the news in the world of politics and more broadly in the UK. Now, we've been reporting live from Glasgow over the past fortnight. Delegates at the high stakes COP26 Climate Summit did agree on a global deal over the weekend to boost climate action. The final version of the broad document, which is called the Glasgow Climate Pact, kept contentious proposals despite last minute pushbacks from China and India, two of the world's biggest emitters. Well, it included language on reducing coal and fossil fuel subsidies and on coming back by next year with new climate targets. The proposals passed after an 11th hour watering down. Well, let's discuss this and the issues around it with our guest, uh, Andrew Morley, CEO of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, started by the British Yachtswoman. The foundation works to accelerate the transition to a circular economy. Andrew, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Um, so many details from COP26. What's your broad view on how good a deal this is? And, and does it do enough on the all-important issue of delivery? I think the, um, the important thing is to keep the deal in context with the process of COP more generally. Um, you know, there's always more that can be done and needs to be done in uh, the national commitments. But I think really uh, to, to judge the overall process and the, the, uh, the meetings and the discussions that went on before the process and the extent to which we've seen for the first time the extent of the private sector and the finance sector weighing in, uh, the discussions around um, uh, nature and uh, the need for more regenerative approaches, etc. Uh, the you know the, the extensive amount of innovation and 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 uh, commitment towards um, innovative activities by finance, etc. I, I think are all very encouraging. So, despite not getting as far as the overall process would have liked to have got to this time round. I think we need to really judge it in in context of the overall process. Okay, you are particularly focused on the circular economy at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, um, and in the past you've said that this is actually the missing piece of the climate jigsaw. Exactly, what is the circular economy in your view, and and was it addressed at all at COP? 
Well, um, the circular economy is, is really the way in which we think about uh, materials and material flows in the economy, the way in which we make and use things. Uh, and this is super important because while we're really focused on the energy transition, the shift to renewable energy and to energy efficiency uh, to help us mitigate climate change, that's really uh, super important, but it's only half the half the um, solution space. It's, it's half of the answer. The, the other half of the answer is the way in which we make and use things, including food, because we put an enormous amount of energy into uh, the material economy, the, the, uh, the products that we make and use, uh, the, the buildings, the cars, the, the infrastructure, uh, the everyday items, the fast-moving consumer goods, which you know, flow through the economy. And what we need to do is we need to you know, keep these materials that we have invested energy into in the system in use much longer to lower the energy demand of the system. And, and actually, when you look at it, this is about you know, 45 50% of the solution space for the 1.5 degree target. So we not only have to transition to renewable energy, but we also need to really think about the material economy and the way in which we make and use things in order to get to that 1.5 degree target. And the circular economy yeah. is really based on three principles. You know, we need, to, we need to, by design, eliminate waste and pollution. So we need to be really thoughtful about the way in which we design things so we keep them in use. We need to actually keep the products and materials in use much, much longer by reusing them, by remanufacturing, repairing, etc. Sharing economy, these are all examples, using things more and using them longer. And importantly, we actually need to design uh, food and um, biological materials that we use in the economies so that we actually have a more biodiverse mix, a more yeah. uh, biodiverse mix and a more regeneratively grown mix of, of these products. But, but COP26 didn't really tackle food or livestock emissions. And we know that they make up, you know, yeah. 30 to 40 percent of human caused greenhouse gases. So a massive issue yeah. that sort of went by the wayside a little bit at COP26. Well, it was there, and I mean, I mean there was there, it, it was sort of in, on the fringes, and it is making its way into the conversation, and it is, you know, it is absolutely being elevated. It's just not on the main stage yet. We need to get it on the main stage, and we need to get it, you know, into the discussion, and we need to help people understand the linkage between, you know, food and the climate agenda, and that's not quite there yet. So it's coming, um, and there were some good signs, but we need much, much more of it. Just give us an example of how a properly functioning circular economy w would work in with a particular sector, perhaps with, with food or, or another concrete example. Well, if you think of uh, cars might be a good example. You know, if you think of a car, you think of putting fuel into a car. So at the moment, you know, you drive up and you put petrol into your car. What we need to do is we need to put electricity into the car, but you've got the car itself. You know, that's a big lump of metal. It's a big lump of it's plastic, glass, metal, uh, a huge amount of, le of electronics, particularly in an electric vehicle. You know, microchips, we've got 1,000 microchips in a regular car, 5,000 microchips in an electronic vehicle. What we need to do is we need to make sure that physical asset, the car itself, is used more intensively for longer. It stays in use much longer. So today, cars are parked, at, on average, about 90% of the time. And we only have you know, one or two people in a five-seater car. And we also take up about 50% of city space for parking and, and road space. So there's a huge opportunity for rethinking mm. 
the car itself, the way in which we keep that material asset utilised and in use much longer, and also how we think about mobility and, and think about it as a multimodal okay. approach. So, you know, connecting public transport with, uh, with, with shared bikes, shared cars, and, 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 and all those sorts of things to get the system to work much better. Okay. One of the things that you have done at the foundation is to try to get on board some of the big fashion houses, including Primark, to try to bring about the kind of circular economy when it comes to fashion. And we also know that fashion is, you know, is uh, also a key kind of um, industry that has not been tackled in terms of waste, pollution um, and disposability. I mean, how much progress are you really making in trying to convince these massive global businesses to make big changes that affect consumers very directly and to do more? Well, I I think, again, it's... it's Early days, in a sense, there's a lot of work that needs to be done uh, because fast fashion is a you know a huge problem. Um, but we are seeing increasingly some of these big companies investing much much more into uh, better materials, into looking at uh, more renewable materials, moving away have, moving away from a sole focus on uh, on uh, things like leather and and looking for uh, mushroom type alternatives to leather, etc. So there is there is investment going into different material sources. Um, there is investment going into new business models. We, we have seen in the fashion space um, a number of startups actually carve out, you know, really really very big billion, billion dollar businesses for reuse and resale, and, and we're starting to see much more. Uh, much more advertising for these companies now. Uh, I think we're seeing, you know, these reuse platforms, these resale platforms, they're coming into play. And I think that um, as they're successful, more of the big players will start to look at these business models more and more. Um, but there is a lot to do. Mm. And, and what we also need to do is we need to get um, more of a policy focus on fashion. And for many of the industries, you know, we're seeing a, uh, a policy approach that says, mm. you know, we need to stop and shift. We're not seeing that in fashion yet, and that has to come. Just briefly, is there a danger that the world's too focused on energy use and, and carbon emissions? Is there a worry that we're ignoring huge depletion of other resources? Well, I, I think that, you know, the point that we're trying to make is that we need a systems approach and not be, you know, narrow and reductive in this. We, we, for example, if we if we simply focus on electrification as the principal agenda, what we could be doing is electrifying types of industrial activity that are massively destructive in other ways. So, you know, we need to think about the broader economy and transforming the economy so that we're not just addressing electrification, but we're addressing, you know, climate change more broadly. We're, we're addressing nature, uh, positive solutions and, and regenerative agriculture and we're also addressing, you know, social issues and, and employment issues by providing new forms of better growth, and not just. Uh, so we're not just taking a narrow electrification and, uh, you know, energy perspective on this. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.